Hey, hello there. It's good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, a.k.a. Harris Insler. And you are listening to TGMBH. These ghosts must be heard. A podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. My guest for today is Sandra Radford. Sandra, say hi to the audience. Hi, audience. Great to be here. Thank you. It's great for me, too. Let's start with just your demographics of where you live, what kind of neighborhood. Uh, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, a pretty quaint town, huge tourist attraction. We have had a huge influx of people, whereas I grew up here. I think the population in Buncombe County at that time was maybe 20,000. Now we're looking at upward to a million. Yikes. That is like some of the neighborhoods in New York City. (laughs) Yeah. People come from all over. And one thing that I've discovered is this seems to be one of the perfect designations for folks to send their children to get rehabilitated. There is a big community of halfway houses and recovery houses, but the thing that we lack the most are the treatment centers. We'll talk about that a little later, okay? And you have a a beautiful area, the, the mountains, right? Yeah, I can't imagine a more beautiful place. Would you tell the audience how you related to your ghost? Hope is my daughter, my only child. I have, however, lost five total. So when I was pregnant with Hope, I was pregnant with triplets. Wow. And she was the only survivor. I had gotten pregnant once before her, lost that one, and then lost the two that were in utero with her and then lost another one after that. She was my miracle. Definitely. I felt like she was all three triplets rolled into one. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, who knows? (laughs) Could you describe some traits that stand out and stories which illuminate those traits? From the beginning, Hope, She was very demanding. She wanted to get her way, which most of the time she did. (laughs) This is when when she was little bitty. Super intelligent, such a quick wit at such a young age. She always, from a young age, just tried to help others. It didn't matter whether it was to her detriment or not. She was just such a kind but yet spirited little soul. Look up strong-willed child in the dictionary. Her picture's going to be there. When I say she was a strong-willed child, her tenacity rivaled my ability to stand strong and hold on to my convictions of parenting an only child. She wore me down. The child never comprehended the meaning of the word no. (laughs) That's tough. That's tough to deal with. Yes meant yes. No meant yes. (laughs) Hope was also, she was a lonely child. 
and I think that had a lot to do with her losing her siblings and then just being the only child. She always had all of her friends. I had a house full of girls all the time. I had a house full of girls. They always loved coming to Hope's house. One thing that I that that really sticks out to me is well, her very best friend Cecilia. I saw her just about a year ago. She wrote me the sweetest note and told me she is the person that she is today because of her friendship with Hope. That's beautiful. Yeah, actually, it was just a couple weeks ago. Four of her male friends, Hope is like me. I I hope women don't get offended by this, but I don't get along with very many women. I'm I'm one of those people that I have more male friends than I have female friends. And Hope was the same way. But I think she was just a natural born therapist. (laughs) She really was. Four of her friends, males, each messaged me and they had a situation. And they said, Sandra, if I could just talk to Hope, she would tell me what I needed to do to fix this. I said, all you have to do is talk to her. Open your mind. She'll talk back. She'll show you the way. How about her activities growing up? Did she have talents? She was a natural athlete and softball was her passion. She started playing shortly after she turned seven. The the coaches even said she was just a natural. She played every position with the exception of shortstop. (laughs) Pretty good at that one. She wanted to be a pitcher. She was the ultimate team player. Never missed a ball game. She had a stomach flu. And and, and it wasn't one of those 24-hour deals. It was a 48-hour deal. It was the game where it was do or die. And she basically was the only pitcher they could put in against this team. But that child got up out of bed. She put her uniform on. I drove her over to the ball field because I had the flu too. She called. She said, Mom, I'm ready to come home. I said, how'd it go? We're going to the state championships. She was a tough cookie. She was a tough cookie. I have to tell this story. We were actually playing out in Franklin, which is about two-hour drive from here. They grow those girls big out there. (laughs) Same age, but they're like a foot taller. Wow. Once again, we were right there playing that last game, and the coach had her in right field. It had just turned dark. The lights had come on. The batter got up, and she did a pop fly out into right field. Hope had her glove up, and then she lost the ball for just one second. It grazed her glove, bopped her in the forehead. Oh, man. She went down. She crawled. She got the ball, got up on her knees, threw that ball, and got the girl out at home plate. Wow. She and I had an unspoken deal. It didn't matter what, I never walked out onto that ball field. I was not one of those parents. If she got hurt, that was between her and the coach. But this time, the coach said, Mom, you're coming with me this time. And I said, I will. At another tournament, it was in Cherokee, North Carolina. The little Cherokee team came. It's their hometown. They didn't have enough players. Her stepfather at the time 
he he was a coach also he went over and talked to some of the others and he said you know i don't think it would be a conflict of interest if one of our girls played in so that they could play and so he came over and he said what would you think about hope playing with the cherokee team i said why not that's up to her she helped him win a couple games that's great you know look i've had situations like that because i coached my whole career what would make hope laugh herself <laughs> she found herself quite funny she had the quickest wit she kept me in stitches you know she did have adhd in my opinion it was environmental because her father was with someone and they ended up having a child hope all of a sudden took a back seat to everything she somewhat started exhibiting behavior that was downright scary no, yeah. I, I understand that. She wanted that baby gone, and then she scared herself, and then she came to me, and she said, Mom, I got to tell you something. <laughs> I said, what? How old was this? How old was she? Hope was seven. Yeah, we found out that my boy had ADHD. We took him to the doctor. They gave him whatever it was, uh, Adderall or whatever, just for a couple of years, and then he didn't need it anymore. Maybe it was puberty or something. That, But I find that a lot, and also the, the quick wit. Zach was like, you could not beat him at one of those games. Friends fool around, make fun of each other. He had the last word. I'm sure Hope had the last word too. Oh, she always did. Yeah. Hope was just a little bit late talking. And my mom said, I just have this feeling that once she gets started, she's not going to stop. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Every thought that came in her mind came out her mouth. No filter. But. It wasn't garbledy gook. Every bit of it made sense. I would even have to say, honey, breathe, take a breath. She would even wear herself out talking, but this child had so much to say, so much to offer. It was like there just wasn't enough time in the day. think about 10 years ago is when hope started to interact with some substances what i discovered harris i was going through some papers she came home from school one day and had been in a fight actually it was a girl that played on her ball team she was expecting this little bitty girl to do her homework for her. well the little girl showed up she didn't have her homework she was going to really beat her up bad. Hope stepped in the middle of her and she said, you're not going to do that. You're, you are not going to hit her. So she came home with a black eye. Uh, the girl had gotten her down on the ground and I was mortified when I watched the tape. Kicked her repeatedly in her ribs. Wow. How old was she? 15. So I took her to the hospital and I did not realize that they had prescribed her hydrocodone. I just didn't know about opioids. The only other time was when she had her tonsils out and they actually prescribed her oxycodone liquid. Hmm. Took one little tablespoon of it and it made her sick as a dog. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, my kid will never get on drugs. That made her sick. The event at the hospital with the hydrocodone was in October of 2009. We were in a situation where the boyfriend and I split up, so Hope and I moved. And her mood really changed a lot. 
I really took it to be all the changes that we'd gone through, having to move because this was like our second move and we were even further away from her hometown then. She just, she didn't feel good. She was lethargic. I really just thought she was depressed. And she might have well been too. Yeah. I had gotten custody of her. That's a whole nother story. Uh, She had a really bad relationship with her dad and he ended up putting bruises on her. I got with a lawyer and they gave me full custody of her. Her dad, he was supposed to have 26 weeks of anger management parenting classes, psychological exam, counseling. He did none of it. And the way Hope looked at that was, I guess he really doesn't want to have a relationship with me if he's not willing to put the work in. Sure. And I know that that weighed really heavy on her. And then she became really combative. I mean, Hope and I were, I mean, it was just me and her. The song, the Chicago song, Just You and Me. Yep, I know it. <laughs> Actually, I did a video of us, but we had moved into our first house. And then I looked at her and I said, well, I guess it's just me and you, kid. And the next day we were driving into town. She was going to school. I was going to work. And that song came on the radio and she said, Mom, there's our song. <laughs> that was our song, Just You and Me. That's the way it was. But she withdrew. She wouldn't talk to me, then started being very argumentative and picking fights over nothing. I found out that she was taking pills. Were these uh, the the opioids? Yeah, they were oxycodone, perk 30s. I pulled her out of school because I thought that's where she was getting it from. No, she was getting it from the neighbor next door. Wow. So it's like I took her, (laughs) I put her right in the line of fire. Yeah, but you didn't know that. No, I didn't. Then within a week, we were having probably the worst fight that we ever had. And I called my niece and I said, can you please come and get her because I I can't do anything with her. Now, did you know, excuse me, did, did you know that she was using? Yeah. I did. That's why I asked them to come and get her because they, they, uh, my niece seemed to have a way with her. She, she knew how to calm her down and get, you know, bring her back down. And they were gone about an hour and my niece called and she said, you're going to have to come get this girl. I said, really, you can't handle her either. And then I, I heard a smacking sound and she was saying, wake up, baby, wake up, wake up, baby, wake up. I said, Jennifer, what's going on? She said, I, I trusted her to take that perk 30 and flush it, but she apparently took it and, and, and she's overdosed. So my nephew-in-law started CPR, the ambulance, and I said, why are you calling me? Call 911. Right. We hung up, she called 911, then they called me back. When EMS got there, Narcan wasn't around then. Uh, they gave her epinephrine straight to the heart Jeez. and and brought her back. This, to me, is where the system was broken. It took me three months to get her into a rehab facility. Everybody had such different criteria. It's a landmine. It is. It's like this Atlas thing was shatterproof. It, 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 it's, it's amazing. It's marvelous. I know. I, every t- I put it on my website. I 
you know, do some social media. I talk about Shatterproof all the time. They're wonderful. They're great. It's too bad they weren't around. I know. I got her into, uh, finally, I got her into a group home rehab facility. She was there for, they wanted her to stay for four months. After she got right at the three month mark, she said, mom, I really think I'm okay. She said, I don't have any desire to use. I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And I really felt like she was okay. I went ahead and uh, had him discharge her. And she was, she, for two years, she was great. So two years since she was 15 to 17, she was okay. Yeah. Wow. How did things get worse? She had a boyfriend. She had her job. They broke up and she lost her job on the same day. The very person who pumped her chest, keeping her alive when she overdosed, handed her one pain pill and that's all it took. She started using again. Oh, she started using again. And where did she get this from? My nephew-in-law, that the one that kept her alive when she originally overdosed, for <laughs> a, a Vicodin, and that's all it took was that one pill, and it tripped it. Of course, especially with what she's been going through, losing the boyfriend, losing her job. It just takes one little trigger. Right. She ended up getting a job at another little restaurant, And she met this young man, which unbeknownst to both of us, he was originally from New York. And he was one of the ones that had come down, had been sent down to Asheville for the rehab, for the sober living and all that. What they told me was that he had broke curfew, so they kicked him out of the halfway house. And could he stay the weekend? Then he told me about losing his daughter to a drunk driver and that he had gotten on drugs, that he was trying to do better. So I I couldn't turn him away. Sure. And I was ignorant. You know, I didn't look into things like I should have. You got to remember, there weren't that many resources that were reliable. They didn't know what we know now. Your mindset is, okay, she was okay for two years. That's pretty good, right? So why would you even think that, oh, she's going to be doing this again? Yeah, there's a possibility, but from what you're telling me, she was doing great. She was, you know, I thought it was just a phase she'd gone through. A little bit of experimenting and that kind of thing. Even I did when I was young. We all did. Basically what we did was we smoke weed and drink a little bit. (laughs) Look, kids experiment. They take risks. They don't know all the facts. They don't know if they're prone to addiction. And that's why we have this big problem with fentanyl now, because you think you're getting something, but you're not getting it. You're getting something else. And that's become a scourge now. It's, it's, it's 10 times worse than heroin. It is. I carried Hope's autopsy with me for five years, for five years, because she had overdosed numerous times over that four-year period after she started using again. You know, she always came out of it. There was always somebody there to help her. But when I walked in and found her that morning, it, it was something, something's not right. You know, I feel like this is a crime scene. You know, all my, all my senses were just screaming that she was murdered. Was that, was that July 18th? Yes. She had come home. Her and her boyfriend came home that night. It was about 12.15. She came over. She hugged me. She kissed me said, I love you, Mama. Good night. And I said, I love you too, sweetheart. I'll see you in the morning. And uh, 
because she had job interviews. She was signing back up for school. She had just gotten out of prison. That was another, that, that's a whole nother story where Hope's situation differs from a whole awful lot of the other stories that I've heard. But I picked her up from prison June 16th, and she was gone July 18th. But I, I, I have to say this, Harris, so many times over those years, I had gotten phone calls where, you know, she literally was getting beat up, but she had the wherewithal to call me and to where I could locate her phone and find her. She always pulled through everything. She always pulled through. She was strong. It never occurred to me that she would die, ever. Bad overdose that she had prior to going to prison. They called me from, the chaplain called me from the hospital, and I was just saying, please don't say it, please don't say it. She said she just wanted me to call you, let you know she's here. I walked into that emergency room, and they had that pick line in her jugular. It was that imminent, and they were giving Narcan like every five minutes. It, it was that bad, and that, that was one of the most horrible sights that I had ever seen. But all I can say is that if it had to happen, I went in to get ready for work. I was like, why is she still asleep? And then I turned around and looked. I saw what I thought was bruises on her side. It said, where'd she get those bruises from? And I started walking toward her and I had my hand out and I was about three feet away from her and I could feel the cold radiating off her body. She was laying on her stomach, which that's pretty much how she slept most of the time. And then I touched her and I was just like, no, 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 no. And I turned her over. She had to have literally died the second she hit the pillow. But I just thank God that she was in her own bed. She was surrounded by people who loved her. It wasn't violent. She just went to sleep. If you could say anything to Hope, what would it be? Why weren't you more careful? Why that one last time? Why that one last time? But what I would really say to her is that I was so proud of her, so proud of her strength, because she fought like hell. She fought against it. She would lay and cry, Mom, I don't want to be this person you know, I need help. And it just wasn't there. Now, the reason that she went to prison four years earlier, the boyfriend that she met at the restaurant that ran out of money for pills. So they obtained property by false pretenses and she got probation. The kid couldn't pass a drug test. So they just kept throwing her back in jail. They did send her to one rehab and they sent her to prison. She didn't have any other charges. How long did they send her for? As the last four years of her life, she spent close to two of them in either jail or prison because she couldn't pass a drug test, not because she committed a crime. That's really ridiculous. And, and there's absolutely no uh, resources in jail. And that's one thing I want to advocate for 
you know, if they've committed a crime and they do need to serve time for it, there should be resources available in those facilities, especially if it's due to substance. Did you feel, did Hope feel any stigma about being a drug, quote unquote, drug addict? Oh, yes. I actually had this story published on Vocal through Instagram, but um, it's pretty long, so I'm just going to touch on the part of mine and her conversation. Hope was in therapy for the majority of her life, but some friends and even family members refused to discuss or accept the fact that her brain was wired differently. Therefore, she was treated differently as well. Oh, what's that called? Oh, yeah, stigma. Since she was treated differently, she was not self-confident, therefore easily swayed by using an opioid that she was told would ease her internal pain. Her brain chemistry was once again altered, resulting in the beginning of what became substance use disorder. Often, she would ask, Mama, why doesn't my brain work like it should? Why do I feel so stupid? And this led her to feel ashamed. And she would tell me that just because she was mine, that what I told her wasn't true. I said, Hope, you were one of the most brilliant, intelligent, kind-hearted, loving, beautiful, caring people that I know. You have so much to give, so much to say, so much to offer this world that I just wish you could see in yourself what others see in you. She said, but I don't, Mom. I don't feel about myself the way you do. What you see, what you say. I said, what do you feel, honey? How do you see yourself? I see what people say I am. I'm a junkie, Mom. And very few people look at me like they did the old Hope. Mom, not even the family. I said, but Hope, you have an addiction. That doesn't make you a junkie, whatever that is, by the way. She said, a junkie is a bad person that does drugs, that uses needles, among other things. I'm judged by everyone for the rest of my life. So where's the incentive to do better? I didn't ask for this, Mom, but it happened. I can't undo it. I can do better, but people won't give me a chance. Wow. And I said, well, you know what, honey? I don't give a damn. You let me hear one person say that they're better or that you aren't good enough. And she said, Mom, you really feel that way? I thought you would hate me. I said, Hope, I hate more than you know what you've gone through. But you're my hero. You faced situations with grace, held your head high, and owned it. There's no one that I know that's a stronger person than you. I admire you. I love you more than ever. You're the most amazing woman, and you are my idol. That's beautiful. So, yeah. Mental health could be the most vital factor in attacking substance abuse. After receiving so many stories, I've noticed most of these ghosts shared a common problem, be it anxiety, depression, PTSD, mood swings. The fact is, many ghosts dealt with mental health issues. And because of the you-know-what, stigma surrounding mental health, as with drug use, many people aren't getting the help they need. Not to mention our current healthcare system, which is set up to discriminate against the poor and middle class. A lot of these families can't always afford these services, even with health insurance. And families who can afford them sometimes discover 
they're just not doing the job. What we need here is structural reform to improve mental health services and make them accessible to everyone who needs them, not just the well-off. You felt the stigma, yes. When Hope died, did you tell people what happened? Yeah, I absolutely did. To know that my best friend, who was her godmother, has barely spoken to me since. My family, out of five years, has maybe instigated a conversation about her. I can count on one hand. They don't talk about her at all. They've taken her pictures down. I guess it's taken me this long to maybe realize that perhaps it's just too painful for them. But nobody was there for me, Harris. Or, or it's about ignorance. Yeah, they were embarrassed. My dad, I know my dad was embarrassed. Because it's ignorance. They don't understand what kind of a sickness this is. And you can hold your head up high. Doesn't matter what your relatives say. You know what? They're relatives by blood. And in this case, they're not your friends. No, I mean, absolutely everyone abandoned me. Everybody. My mother literally dragged me through the first couple years, but even she wouldn't talk about hope. That maybe is pain for her, you know, that she's gone. Do you think if there were no stigma involved with this sickness, you think that might have changed things? Absolutely. And why is it do you think people still cling to this shame, this stigma about a disease? Because I think it goes back to, you know, back in the 60s and 70s when mm -hmm. heroin and needle use, the term junkie came along. You know, all these movies and television shows, books have depicted people who use drugs as, you know, almost like trolls that live under bridges, nasty, horrible people. Yep, yep from generation to generation to generation. This whole thing about self-care for people who have lost someone, do you have things that you do to take care of yourself? I 100% throw myself into Shine Hope's Hope. I've gotten a lot better at taking care of myself. Good. Blatantly honest here, I, I tried to suicide four times. Well, something like that can do it to you. In the first two years. The last time, I, I mean, I, I got it down to a science. You know, my body weight, what combination, absolutely everything. And I, and I knew that was it. I woke up feeling refreshed, better than I'd felt in a long time. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. Enough of this. And then it was just a couple days later that I found Shatterproof. Thank goodness. Not too long after that, you. <laughs> and it took me, talking about taking time, I, I was in a fog for the first month or so. And my daughter and my wife said, you know what, you need to go to therapy. I said, I don't need therapy. A little, a couple of a weeks go by and then you know what? I need therapy. <laughs> so I did. And I've been in therapy since April of 2006. Um, I stopped and then, you know what? I mean, look, my friends, I don't wanna keep talking to them about this. That's not a great topic, but they all understood. 
And so I said, you know what? Uh, and I went back. And I'm, in fact, today I had my session before this. <laughs> and talking to you has really, I mean, you are amazingly strong. And I know you are so committed to Shine Hope. So you figured out what you needed to do. Talking to Sandra brought home the issue of self-care, not only for substance abuse sufferers, but for their families. I know from personal experience, families are often left out of this conversation. They are so busy trying to take care of their ghost, they forget about themselves. And this can lead families to think, once the ordeal is over, they don't need help acclimating back to their lives. This is especially true for men. If you've listened to these episodes, I hope you've noticed a trend. I'm yet to interview a man. Besides the welcome support of John Trang, who joined his wife Jude in episode two, not a single father has approached me for an interview, only mothers. Perhaps if we made a space for men to open up and they allowed themselves to be vulnerable, more men would share. Let's make this clear. Being open does not make us weak, men. It makes us human. And sharing your scars with the world is a sign of strength. Let's go back to a different topic. And I know this one is probably going to anger you like it angers me about the healthcare system. What do you think is needed? And not just by organizations like Shatterproof. Do you think the government should take a bigger role in making things easier for people to get well? Not only the person who is sick, but their families. Yeah. And when I send this to you, I address that. There was a time when people that were handicapped, they were called crippled. We had to get politically correct there. All of a sudden, you had all these handicapped spots. I have a nephew who was born with spina bifida. So, you know, that, that really opened my eyes to that issue. What about somebody with diabetes? What about somebody with cancer? Right. The one thing that comes with all those other diseases is counseling. Cancer patients and their families, you know, paraplegics, quadriplegics, they get counseling. Their families get counseling. They get help. Diabetics, look at the leaps and bounds that they've made in managing diabetes. Okay, most of these are visual. You can see it. But when it comes to the mind, it's not something that you can see. Back in the day, if someone had a mental illness in your family, what did they do? They locked them away. Stigma, too. They were, they were not talked about. This happened in my own family. One of my mother's sisters, around age 13, well, her mother woke up one night to her standing over her with a butcher knife. Yikes. But that was like the last straw. They had gone through a whole lot of other things with her. Uh, my grandfather worked for the state. They were able to get her into a home. Now, my mother, there were 13 children. My grandparents got all the kids together and made all of them promise not to ever take her out of the facility. At least they had a facility. Yeah, but she wouldn't have got the help that she needed had he not happened to be working for the right. state. If it was just a farmer, you know, they would have locked him back there in the barn. It's things like that, that if people can see a disability, then they acknowledge it. 
but if it's mental, right? Yeah, it's taboo. I'd like you to inform our audience what you're doing in your advocacy. My main goal is to raise awareness surrounding overdose prevention and educate. You know, all of these kids. You can't just take a pill because you don't know what you're getting. I guess where I've really kind of found my niche more than anything, let's face it, I'm a veteran now, and I've found myself in a position where I can help other moms who are early into this. I do memorial videos. There's a group, it's No Hope, North Carolina. I just finished their video. They have 100. She just finished banner number two. I did a video for banner number one, and then I just finished the one for banner number two last night. And if moms just want one of just their child, I just tell them to send me whatever pictures and whatever song they want. I'll make them a video. Because that's one thing that helps me is to look at Hope's pictures. You know, I'll watch those videos and she's there with me. The whole stigma, you know, it's got to stop. You know, the six degrees of separation, you know someone and they know, well, now it's like down to like three degrees of separation because that's how many people know somebody who has this problem or know someone who knows someone. So you're right, it's, especially with the pandemic, it's not getting better, it's got worse. Do you have an organization? Do you have a, a website? Shinehopeshope.com. I talk about hope on the website and people can contact me. I provide resources if they need recovery support. You know, I'll, I'll get them in touch with whomever, whatever their need may be. Shine Hopes Hope is a nonprofit now. I'm still trying to get her off the ground. Well, hopefully this will help. I hope so. This is something else that is really, really dear to me. You know, when I was telling you about how everyone just kind of abandoned me, I've just done so much research and reading. The things I've learned since the loss of my child is how to help your friend, your daughter, your child who has lost a child. Show up, listen, forgive them because they, this is such unchartered territory that they don't know who they are. I'm still trying to find out who I am. It's a journey. It's a journey. So I'm putting all these informational things together to help people who are in these situations. I mean, I know there's 10,000 books out there on grief, but this is just like the one, two, three, down and dirty. That's it. That's what they need. And, and another thing is get to know that new person because you just might find that you like them. But my family was so mad at me because I was not the same person that they, I was the one that lit up the room. I was the one that fixed everybody's problems. And I couldn't even put one foot in front of the other and they couldn't understand. Maybe if people go to your site and you have this information up it would be good for people who are going through this now so their relatives will know what it's like and what they should do and not just abandon people because of their own shame and I thank you for doing what you're doing I absolutely admire you we're in it for the right reason well we just 
I don't want anybody else to be me. Eggs. <laughs> ever want anybody to feel this way. Just keep loving us. And whatever you do, don't give up on your child. You may have to take a break. But when they get backed into a corner and there's nobody there in that corner for them, that's when things go really, really bad. Just be there. Just love. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. To stay tuned with These Ghosts Must Be Heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at these Ghosts Pod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to hear more stories and share your own if you'd like. Our podcast is now streaming on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and coming to more soon. So there's plenty of ways to hear these ghosts. And as Zach used to say, peace out.